0: It's good to be with you church, my name is Halim Sa, I serve as one of the pastors and elders here. We've been working our way through the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and like we've said before, when a loved one is dying, you pay attention to their last words, right? Right? You pay attention to their last words because with their last words, they're not going to just say something flippant. They're not going to just say something insignificant. They're going to say something that they truly mean, something that they really value. You pay attention to the last words being spoken when your mom is dying. You pay attention to the last words being spoken when your, da- when your dad is dying. Well, how much more when your God is dying? And not just dying, but dying for you. Let's look at the sixth saying of Jesus on the cross. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Three words in English, but in the original Greek, it's only one word. Jesus uttered only one word here at the cross, and it's the word tetelestai. You say it with me, tetelestai. Tetelestai, It just sounds cool, doesn't it? A.W. Pink once said that, it is finished is but one word in the original, yet in that one word is wrapped up the gospel of God, all assurance and the sum of all joy. Charles Spurgeon said this, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop, for that is all that we can call one word, tetelestai. Yet it would need all the other words that ever were spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable, finished. It was a conqueror's cry. It was uttered with a loud voice. There's nothing of anguish about it. There is no wailing in it. It is the cry of one who has completed a tremendous labor and is about to die. And before he utters his death, prayer, "Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit," He shouts his life's last hymn in that one word: "To To tell us die." Perhaps the greatest single word ever spoken in human history. Perhaps there is no other single word that has ever been spoken. Perhaps there is no other single word that has ever been written down that can better show us the greatness of Jesus than this one word, tetelestai. It means finished. It means accomplished. It was always a happy word. It was a victorious word. It was a word of accomplishment. Whenever you saw it, you were happy because it meant that something was finished. Something was completed. But there was a particular usage of it that I think will help us understand what Jesus meant by it. It meant debt paid in full. It meant debt paid in full. You see, during this time, whenever you incurred a debt that you couldn't pay back, you were put into what's called a debtor's prison. And so imagine owing something, and you just can't pay it back. You try to make payments on it, but you just can't pay it back. And so you get thrown into prison. And when you get thrown into prison, they write down a list of all your debts. Everything that you owe, all written down. And you have to stay in prison until all of it, until all of it is fully paid off. But how can you? How can you pay it off? You couldn't pay it off when you were free, when you were free to work. You're in prison now. How could you pay it off? Well, you couldn't. And so the only way that you could get out of debtor's prison was if somebody else came on your behalf and paid the debt off for you. And so, can you imagine the feeling? When somebody would pay off the debt for you, this is what would happen, they would take that list that had all your debts written down, everything written down, everything that you'd owed, it's what put you in prison in the first place, and they would write across it one word, "To die." debt paid in full. And so, can you imagine, you're in prison, helpless, right, without any hope of getting out by your own power, but somebody else comes along and they pay the full penalty for you. They pay it all off. And as you're leaving the prison, they hand you a receipt. The person that just paid off your debt, they hand you a receipt. And on it is written all your debts. Everything that you owed. Except on top of the list, you see one word. to die. debt paid in full. And this person says to you, here's your receipt. It's all paid off, I paid it off for you. Now here's your freedom, here's your freedom. But not only that, here's your safety. No one can ever accuse you of these same debts ever again. Do you guys see that? Here's your receipt and it's, it's your freedom. You get to get out of jail because of it but now also here is your safety. No one can ever accuse you of these same debts ever again. Tetelestai. This is the word that Jesus said on the cross. Are you seeing the connections? Do you see the greatness of this one word? Do you see how it points to the greatness of Jesus and everything that he accomplished for us? You do? Well, we can go home now, right? (laughs) We We can all go home, it's all done. But No, there's more. Spurgeon said there's an ocean of meaning in this one word, right? And so let's look deeper. Well, let's ask the most obvious question first. Jesus said, it is finished. Well, what's been finished? What's been finished? Well, to really answer this question, to really look deeply at what this word means, we have to do an Old Testament lesson. We have to do a little bit of an Old Testament lesson. So you guys ready? We're going to be covering a lot of material, a short period of time, so stay with me, okay? Sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve. Sin enters into the world through Adam and Eve, and starting with the sin of Adam and Eve, the way that God deals with the sins of His people is through a blood sacrifice. Through a blood sacrifice. You see, God is just, and because He is just, He demands that payment be made for sin. Sin has to be dealt with, but He's also merciful, isn't He? And because He's also merciful, the blood that He demands... The blood that needs to be shed, he has provided a way where it's not your own blood but the blood of a substitute. The blood of a substitute. Remember the wages of sin is what? Death, right? Death, so Hebrews 9.22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Unless blood is shed, there is no forgiveness of sins because there's life in the blood. And this is the case all throughout the Old Testament. That's what the book of Leviticus is all about. Remember the book of Leviticus? It's the book that always throws off your Bible reading plan every year. It is dense. There's a lot of complicated stuff in it. Um, But simply put, the whole book is about God setting up a sacrificial system. Him setting up a sacrificial system by which the blood of bulls and goats are spilled instead of the blood of his people. It's called atonement, it's called atonement, the demand for the payment of sin being satisfied, atoned for, right? And so in Leviticus 16, we have the description of what's called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. It was considered the holiest day of the year by the Israelites, it was a day when sins were dealt with. It was a day when the high priest would take two goats and he would present them before God at the door of the tabernacle. And he would take the first goat and he would pull its head back and he would take a sharp knife and slit its throat, blood being shed and the goat dying, being sacrificed. He would take the blood, then go into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled, and he would sprinkle the blood on what's called God's mercy seat. Why? in order to satisfy the demand of God's justice. That sins had to be dealt with. Sins had to be paid for. But then he would come out of the tabernacle and he would take the second goat, the living goat, and he would put both of his hands on the head of the goat. But instead of killing this goat, what he would do is he would confess over it. He would confess over it. Leviticus 1621 says, all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat. He would just list the sins one after another. So imagine being there, you're one of the Israelites. All your sins. Can you think of some sins in your head? The high priest would call it out, one after another all your sins, out loud. And then the sins of your wife. And then the sins of your children. And then the sins of your neighbor. And on and on and on, out loud. And so can you imagine standing there and the feeling of the guilt and the shame weighing heavier and heavier upon your shoulder? But, his putting his both of his hands... On the head of the goat. What this signified was all the sins of Israel being transferred to their substitute. It was guilt transference. Incidentally, this is where we get the term scapegoat. And then we are told in Leviticus 16.22, "...and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities into a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness." The goat bearing Israel's sins was taken into an uninhabited wilderness outside their camp where it would go and die. And so you're an Israelite, you're standing there and you're watching the goat walk further and further into the wilderness. You're watching the goat walk further and further into the wilderness until it disappears. And so it was a picture of all your sins, all your shame, all your guilt, all the consequences of your sins disappearing, being removed and taken from you, right? And so the first goat, it was a picture of the payment that God demands being satisfied. And the second goat, now therefore, the guilt of your sin, the shame of your sin, the consequences of your sin now being removed from you. So beautiful picture, right? It's a beautiful picture, but there was a problem. There was a problem. All it was was a picture. All it was was a picture. It was a picture of what needed to happen, not the actual doing of what needed to happen. Well, why do I say that? Because Hebrews 10.4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What did they have? They had the blood of bulls and goats. But Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so then we ask the question, well then how were people in the Old Testament saved? How were their sins dealt with? How how was it forgiven? Well, the most helpful way that I think I can explain it is like this. All the Old Testament sacrifices that were made, the payment, the payment for sin that was made through the blood of bulls and goats, it was like making a payment with a credit card. It was like making a payment with a credit card, okay? And so, let's say you go shopping. You go shopping with your credit card, right? You're shopping for a new TV, and you find the perfect one, 60 inches, HD, plasma. Take it home, hang it on your wall, and watch The Walking Dead, or Dora, or something like that, right? And so, and so you go to the counter, and you hand them your credit card, and they swipe your credit card, and now they let you take the TV home. TV is yours now. You get to take it home, you get to watch it. The TV now belongs to you, right? In a very real way. But as long as what? As long as when the bill comes, you make good on the payment, right? As long as when the bill comes, you make good on the payment. You see, a credit card payment is not a real payment. Now, that may be news to some college students in here. It's not woohoo free money, okay? It's just a picture of a payment. Just a picture of a payment that's only valid if you make good on the real payment at a future date, okay? And so, you see, every time when God's people would make a sacrifice for their sins, it was like taking a credit card and making a charge. Making a charge against God's account against God's account, and just like a credit card, the blood of bulls and goats, these were not real, actual payments. But just like with the credit card, you got to take the TV home, right? And so in a very real way, sins were forgiven. They were forgiven, but it all depended on what? It all depended on God paying the bill later. It all depended on God paying the bill later. And so Romans 3, 24, through 26 tells us that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, what are these verses saying? It's saying that God did keep his promise saying that God did keep His promise to make the real payment. It's saying that God put Jesus forward as the payment. That's what propitiation means. It means the satisfying of the demand of payment. The propitiation by Jesus' blood, the only blood that could actually pay for sin. And it says that this was to show God's what? To show God's Righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Well, what does this mean? It means that for a long period of time, because God is slow to anger, because his credit limit is really high, sins were not really dealt with, it was only charged. Sins were not really paid for, it was only charged. But if you just make a bunch of credit card charges and never pay the bill, what are you doing? You're committing credit card fraud, right? You're committing credit card fraud. And so God forgave countless sins through the blood of bulls and goats because he promised that one day he would make the true payment. But if he never does, it would prove him to be a liar. It would prove him to be a fraud. And so that's why Romans 3 is adamant that when Jesus was finally offered to be the true payment for sin, that this was to show God's righteousness. That this was to show God's righteousness. It proved him not a liar. It proved him not a fraud. It, It proved him to be the true forgiver of sins. It proved him to be the keeper of promises. The just and the justifier, it says. He is just. And so he demands the payment for sin. But because he's also the justifier, he provides the payment. Right? He himself provides the payment. And so God put Jesus forward to make good on that promised payment by being the true Lamb of God that could actually pay for our sins. That's why in John 1, 29, when John the Baptist, he sees Jesus, what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? He's seeing it, he's seeing it, God is making his payment. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away our sins, but the lamb of God could. And then as the perfect spotless lamb of God, he accomplished in himself the picture of the two goat payments, right? He accomplished in himself the picture of the two goat payments. The first goat, what happened to it? It was killed. It was sacrificed. Blood was shed. Why? To be a picture of the payment that is being made for sin. And so Jesus was killed. He was crucified. His blood was shed, but not just to be a picture, but to be the actual payment for sin. And what happened to the second goat? The second goat was, was taken away. It was removed. It was taken outside the camp, right? Why? To be a picture of the removal of our sin and guilt. And so Jesus, do you know what happened to him? Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that he was taken outside the camp. He was taken outside the camp. He was crucified outside the camp, but not just to be a picture of removal of shame, but that he would be the actual remover of our sin and guilt and shame and all the consequences of the sin. And so, not just a picture. He's not just a picture, he's the actual doer. He's the actual accomplisher. And so, having accomplished it all, actually making the payment for sin, and actually removing our sin, shame, and guilt, he said to tell us die. Debt paid in full. It is finished. And so, I know that we could apply this in a million different ways. We could, because Spurgeon said, in here, in this one word, is an ocean of meaning, right? But I want to do today is give you two ways two ways that Tetelestai ought to change our lives. First way, Tetelestai ought to change the way we deal with guilt. How many of you feeling guilty? Tetelestai ought to change the way that we deal with guilt because Jesus removed it. And second, Tetelestai ought to deal with the way that we deal with suffering. Tetelestai ought to deal with the way that we deal with suffering. Why? Because it's through suffering he accomplished it. And so let's talk about guilt first. With our sins, we've racked up a debt that we could not pay. With our sins, we've racked up a debt that we could not pay. We were imprisoned, slaves to sin, the Bible says. There was a list of debt against us, right? Against every single one of us, there's a list of debt against us. Every angry outburst written down. Every angry out person here, written down, right? Every lust-filled look, written down. Every cheating business deal, every overlooked orphan, every gossip, every ignoring of the scriptures, every failure to pray, and on and on and on and on, all written down, okay? This is what bars us in prison, this is the list that the enemy, the accuser, he reads over us every time we wake up. Every morning we wake up. Every time we try to spend time with Jesus, oh, you think, he, you think he hears you. After what you did last night, you think he hears you? Every time we try to serve and do something good, oh, you better work, you better work real hard if you think God is going to accept you. Every day and all throughout our day, very loudly or very quietly. He's reading the list of our sins against us. And so throughout our day, this is the reason why throughout our day, there's an underlying sense of guilt and shame about us. And sometimes it's overwhelming and it paralyzes us. Do you feel it even now? Do you feel it even now? But what happened to this list? We all have a list. What happened to this list? Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you, that stood against us with its legal demands, what happened to it? It was nailed to the cross. And Jesus, with his blood, he declared over it, Tetelestai, debt paid in full, right? And now the cross of Jesus is now your receipt. Did you know that? The cross of Jesus is now your receipt. That's why Christians throughout the ages have looked at this cross and held it to be so precious because this is our receipt. This is our receipt that says our debts are paid in full. This is our receipt that says no one can ever accuse you of these same debts ever again, right? Jesus made the payment. If Jesus made the payment, no one can demand the payment for it again. And so do you see why that changes everything? Finally, we can deal with our guilt. Finally, we can deal with our guilt. Some of you used to dream great dreams for Jesus. You used to dream of changing your workplace by starting a Bible study. You used to dream of starting a ministry on campus to reach the countless unbelieving students. You used to dream of going to an unreached people group. But then the guilt of sin set in, didn't it? How are you going to do that? You sin all the time. The guilt of sin came in and it weighed upon you and it paralyzed you, didn't it? The enemy, the accuser, he started reading the list of your sins against you, didn't he? But the next time he does, this is what you tell him. You say, yes, I know my accuser. Yes, I know my accuser. I've committed all of those sins. Every single one. Countless times. I failed my Jesus. That list is real, but where are you reading that list from? Where are you reading that list from? Oh, my accuser, you're at the cross, aren't you? You're at the cross, aren't you? I know of only one place where the record of my debt is, and it's at the cross. It's been nailed to the cross of my Jesus. And so what else does that list say? What else does that list say? You've read that entire list of my debts against me, but you forgot one word. You forgot to read to me one word. What does it say? die. debt paid in full. My Jesus paid all my sins. So shut up, accuser. My Jesus paid all of my sins. That's how you deal with your guilt. And it ought to change the way you pray too. Another way that we try to deal with our guilt is by when we've sinned, we go to God and we pray, right? God, I'm sorry, messed up again, I did it again. Will you be merciful to me? Will you be gracious to me and forgive me of my sins? We pray like that and we ought to pray like that. We need God's mercy, we need His grace. But because of the tetelestai of Jesus, because He paid it in full, did you know that we could pray something more? We could pray something more. Not just, God, will you be merciful to me? Will you be gracious to me and forgive me of my sins? But God, will you be just? God, will you be just to forgive me of my sins? Because Jesus paid for my sins. He paid it all, Lord. And will you honor now? Will you honor now the payment that Jesus has made on my behalf? Will you be just to forgive me of my sins? Because of Tetelestai, because our sins have been fully paid for, yes, God's mercy is pleading with him to forgive us. But not only God's mercy, now God's justice is demanding that we be forgiven. Did you know that? His justice too. It's right of him to forgive us. It's right of him. It would be wrong of him to demand two payments for sin. Jesus already paid it all. He is just, He is right of Him to forgive us of our sins. So do you see what that does to your prayer? Well, you ask, where does it say that in the Bible? First John 1, 9 says that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, it doesn't say he is faithful and merciful to forgive us of our sins. It doesn't say he is faithful and loving to forgive us of our sins. Of course he's merciful, of course he's loving, but that's not what it says. It says he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And if we pray like that, I promise you, you'll feel the weight of your guilt and shame, lift, and you'll get to dream those great dreams once again. And so, to tell us changes the way you deal with guilt. Secondly, to tell us changes the way you deal with your suffering. It changes the way you deal with your suffering. Something bad happens, right? Something bad happens to us. How do we deal with it? How do we interpret it? Something bad happens and we interpret like this. We may think, well maybe God is punishing me for some sin. Right? Maybe God is punishing me for some sin. But in light of Tetelestai, is that true? Something bad happens and we think, well maybe evil is is winning somehow. Maybe Satan is triumphing in this world somehow. Well in light of Tetelestai, is that true Let's look deeply at tetelestai Remember tetelestai is a cry of victory It's a cry of victory you know you and I we don't have trouble seeing it as victory because you know and you know and I know that the resurrection happened right Jesus got up from the grave he conquered sin and death we know that we don't have any trouble seeing it as victory But imagine being one of Jesus' disciples at this time Imagine what are they going through? Here's this one in whom we've placed all of our hopes and dreams and now he's captured. And out of fear, out of being scared, we ran away. We abandoned our Jesus. He was, for this Jesus, we, we left our homes, didn't we? For this Jesus, we left our jobs. He was so wonderful. Every time he spoke, it felt like our hearts were gonna jump out of our chest. There was nobody like him the way that he would speak and embrace and pay attention to the lowliest of people. There was nobody like him. But now, he was hanging on a cross. He was dying. We could hear his breath becoming shallower and shallower. And then all of a sudden he cries out to tell us die. It's a cry of victory and we're thinking to ourselves what is happening right now? He, he must be confused. He must be hallucinating. See because there's nothing about the cross that looks victorious. We think to ourselves he must be hallucinating. The people closest to Jesus were reading the cross as a disaster. They were depressed, they were sad, they were scared. Remember the disciples, what were they doing? They were in a house, doors locked, windows shut, scared. Do you remember what Mary Magdalene did? She went to the tomb and when she saw that it was empty, she didn't begin to celebrate, oh he must be risen. So she walked around crying, asking people, did you take the body of my Lord? Did you put his body somewhere? The people closest to Jesus were reading it as disaster. They couldn't imagine anything worse happening. But what was really happening? What was really happening? Jesus was saving them, right? He was saving them. The people closest to Jesus were reading it as disaster. They couldn't imagine anything worse happening, but what was actually happening? He was saving them. He was paying for their sins. He was working salvation for them. That's what he was doing. That was was what was actually happening. So oftentimes when bad things happen, we read it as disaster. We can't imagine something more terrible happening. Some of you have gone through it. Some of you are going through it right now, right? Everything seems to be falling apart. Satan seems to be winning. Evil seems to be triumphing. Whatever is happening, we're reading right now as disaster. But Do you know what's actually happening? God is saving you. He's increasing your faith. He's making it genuine. You see, it's easy to believe when everything's going well. Everything's going right. But when everything's falling apart, will you still believe? He's making your faith genuine. Some of you have experienced a loss. You lost something precious, deeply precious. Do you know what God's doing? He's saving you. He's forcing you to let go of things that you hold so dear. He's loosening the grip on some things in your life that you're clenching to, right? Why? Because he's saving you. He's trying to show you that Jesus is enough, that he's more than enough. You know, someone once said that you may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. Someone once said that you may never know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. God is trying to show you that Jesus is all that you need. My son Malachi, for Christmas, he got a set of bow and arrows, like a toy toy bow and arrow set. And he just loved this thing, you know, he's having all these shooting practices and and he's shooting his brother and sister and he's shooting me and, and it's like these big fat arrows. I'm like, this is a toy and uh, it hurts. And he just loves this thing. Out of all the characters in Avengers, his favorite is Hawkeye. And I'm like, Hawkeye? You, know, you got this big green giant muscle man Hulk. You got Iron Man with this cool suit. You got Thor, the demigod. And, and Malachi wants to be just a normal dude that knows how to shoot bow and arrow. And it's strange, you know. And uh, for the longest time, he thought, his name was Hot Guy, not Hawkeye. <laughs> so he kept telling people he wanted to be Hot Guy. And, um, and so all that to say, he just loved this bow and arrow. And, uh, but, you know, like all cheap plastic toys, it broke one day. It just cracked in half. And um, so he comes into our room, and he's just weeping. He's just broken. He just looks so pitiful. And... Um, you know, as a parent, you kind of laugh, but you're also hurt, you're sad. And um, and so, but what Angela and I knew that Malachi didn't know was that because of the craziness of Christmas, we had another brand new set of bow and arrows in our closet. And it wasn't just a regular uh, same one, it was the upgraded version. It was called the zombie slayer version, Okay. <laughs> Zombie slayer, bow and arrow in our closet. And if it was up to us in that moment, apart from God's grace allowing us to slow down and think, we would have just gotten it and given it to him right away to see the smile on his face, you know? But in God's grace, he he made us pause and he made us think and he made us realize that what Malachi needed most right at this time was to grieve a loss, for him to lose something. For him to go through something in his kid heart that he's interpreting as disaster. He couldn't imagine anything worse happening to him, right? He needed to learn that the things in this world are going to break, that the things in this world aren't meant to truly satisfy his heart. And so the best thing that we could do for Malachi in this time was for him to experience a loss, even a small one, but one that would help his heart learn. Something about this world that we want him to learn, that it's fleeting, right? That it's temporal. But our hearts still ached. We wanted to go get that new bow and arrow and give it to him and see the smile on his face once again. But instead, we just held him, just kept telling him as he grieved the loss of his precious bow and arrow, it's okay, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And so church, something bad has happened right? Something bad has happened, and we're seeing it as a disaster. And if the best thing for us is for God to immediately make it better, if that's the best thing for us, He will. He will. He has the power to. He, in His closet is the setting, the new thing, whatever you lost, it's there, right? He has the power to immediately make it better, and many of us have, have experienced that. Something has gone wrong, and God immediately makes it better. If that's the best thing for us, that's what he'll do for us. He's a good father. He's not a cruel father. But if the best thing for us is for us to experience a loss, for us to experience something that we're reading as tragedy because he's increasing our faith and making it genuine, because he's loosening our grips on anything that's not him, if that's the best thing for us, then that's what he'll do. But he's a good father. He knows that it hurts. He knows that you're in pain, and he'll hold you through it all. See, the tetelestai of Jesus, it shows us that when everything looks like it's falling apart, when everything looks like all hope is gone and everything is lost, that what's actually happening is that God is busy. He's at work. He's rescuing you. We can trust him. Let's pray. Father, you are good. You are good. You know how to give good gifts to your children. You are not withholding. And in Jesus, you gave us exactly what we needed. There was a list of debt against us. Held us in prison. Held us in bondage. No way to get out by our own powers. But Jesus came and he paid that debt declared over to Tetelestai, debt paid in full. And now our sin, our shame, our guilt, it's been removed far away, into the distance until we can't see it in, anymore, it's gone. And so Lord, help us to live in light of that Tetelestai of Jesus. When we begin to forget, when when the words of the accuser becomes more tangible and real than the word of Jesus, or supernaturally, help us to hear, to tell us that. In Jesus' name we pray.